Hey there, everybody. This is Josh Rayner, Editor-in-Chief of DC Comics News. Are you planning on heading to Wizard World Comic Con sometime this year? Well, we have a great deal for you. If you are planning to do so, you can get 10% off your ticket purchase by using the code DCNEWS at checkout. That's DC. N-E-W-S at checkout to save 10% off your tickets for Wizard World. And that's for any city that uh, that they will be doing. So make sure you head over to www.wizardworld.com slash tickets and use the code DCNEWS for 10% off. It's the last week in March. All of the new DC Comics books are out for this week. And that means we are back for the DC Comics News Spinner Rack. Where once a week, your host, Seth Singleton, that's me, pulls five books from the Spinner Rack. Existing there in the interdimensional space-time, five books released this week by DC Comics to give you the what and the why about what's worth reading this week. So without any further ado, let's give the spinner rack a twirl and pull our first book. I decided to start out with Detective Comics number 1000. Simply put, it was a no-brainer. Here we are celebrating Batman's 80th year. Detective Comics 1000 featuring such an amazing list of great writers and artists I couldn't help myself from making this an instant selection. And it starts out great with uh, Batman's Longest Case by Scott Snyder. It's a case that reveals more clues with each panel. And it all leads to the Guild of Detection, where Slam Bradley says, Because every answer in the end leads to another question. And that's the real joy. And I really love this story for its detail, its intricacy, and for the revelation that the Guild of Detection features such prominent figures like Hawkman and Detective Chimp. There's others for you to take in, but what really stuck with me is the idea that this was something that was set up for Bruce. It was created from the moment of um, his earliest days as a detective, and each time he thought he had found an answer, he was only actually finding a new clue that was leading him on a greater mystery. And it's that chase for years and years that the other detectives know is actually the thing that drives him and the thing that drives them. And they let him know that the years he spent, because he asks how many years has been invested in this, that the role of who was working on his case and the next lead or the next clue always changed. All Detective Chimp does point out that one of the more, as he calls it, brilliant examples, genius, I think, was done by him, and that he's extremely proud to point out to Bruce that this was his handiwork, while others might have had a hand in other parts along the way. I really enjoyed this story, because I've enjoyed some discussions recently with the DC Comics News podcast team about how the new 
Batman movie is supposed to focus on Batman's detective skills, and it's something that we're all really excited about. Because when it's done correctly in the comics, Batman's ability as the world's greatest detective is unmatched, unparalleled. And I really enjoyed watching this story about his being a detective and about how being such a great detective actually means that he's part of this great cast, this great group that exists throughout time, who are all detectives, and that they all share the same passion for doing it. The next story, because there are so many stories in Detective Comics number 1000, Manufacture for Use, was written by Kevin Smith. And I'm going to keep this brief, one, because there are just so many stories in here that I'm only going to focus the majority of my time on the ones that I feel uh, really spoke to me the most. And for those that I simply enjoyed or didn't really feel there was as much to read into for whatever reason, attraction, engagement, I'll go ahead and keep it on the simpler side. And that's the case for Manufacture for Use, which was a nice story from Kevin Smith, and it was about turning a weapon of terror into a shield. Batman, in one of his more common and familiar and perhaps fun street personas, or at least fun in the recent time frame that it's been used by more than a few writers, I'd point out, purchases the gun that killed his parents, Thomas and Martha Wayne, in Crime Alley. When he brings it back to the Batcave, Alfred questions his motive, only to realize that Batman's point of telling the story, and as it's revealed through a series of panels showing him fighting villains, is that he wants to take the weapon and melt it down and turn it into a shield, something that will allow his parents and this element of their memory, this piece of violence and anger that was used to take them away from him, can now be a shield that he can protect himself with by placing it where his bat symbol goes on his uniform. I felt that there were some parts that were a little heavy-handed in the telling of this, but overall, it wasn't a bad Batman story. It just wasn't one of the ones that I focused on as significantly as I did uh, previously with Batman's August Case, or as I enjoyed in the next story, The Legend of Newt Brody by Paul Dini. This was a really fun and light-hearted story about the worst henchman to ever be a criminal. Thanks for understanding my laughter while I was trying to read that and trying to just get those words out because it really was fun to enjoy that bit of humor that I always felt um, brought things like Batman the Animated Series to light and that sometimes the live action has has had an opportunity to catch hold of, but that overall has mostly been reserved to the animated and to the comic books. And this story of this just tragic henchman is told by different supervillains, from Harley Quinn to Riddler. And they all describe the ways that one bumbling oaf brought down a criminal masterpiece through sheer stupidity. In each example, poor Newt, is either just unaware, clueless, or clumsy. And whether it's setting on fire and burning down Poison Ivy's lab and all of her experiments, or accidentally doing something else just as ridiculous, each villain points to Newt Brody as the one who led to their downfall right when they had created the perfect caper. Now, I will tell you there is a spoiler here and I'm not afraid to share it, Newt Brody is actually a character and a disguise who is worn by many 
members of the bat family as a ruse, as a way to infiltrate a caper and to then be a part of spoiling it through the clumsy antics of Newt Brody. In fact, I think it's only Damien, according to the final panel, who hasn't had a chance to play Newt Brody. And despite his height, he's ready to go in there as Newt Brody Jr., which I think would be a really fun story. Now, Batman's design by Warren Ellis was a story I really enjoyed about the Dark Knight's penchant for predicting and planning and his ability to make chess moves that outthink his opponents by 10 steps. And yet the story ends with his ability to show a trigger man that death is something that he tends to as a ghost of Gotham, as someone who feels as though the parts of him that were still living have already been killed and that the only thing left for him to do is to continue fighting this fight despite the fact that so much of what made him he feels has already died. It's the kind of statement that breaks through to the trigger man holding the key to a dirty bomb and it lets him know that just because he's frustrated and angry and he's experiencing a sense of powerlessness that what he's attempting to do is something Batman already has done and is already doing. And that unless he's really willing to do it, he doesn't really need to, because Batman's already there doing it. And even though what he's experiencing might be miserable, might be horrible even, that at the same time, he'll get through it because Batman will be there to essentially take the responsibility and also be the one who's capable of doling out what's needed in the responsible way that only he knows how. Sadly, this trigger man has gone too far, and he's willing to be destructive just to be hurt. Batman understands that frustration, but he also knows the consequences of what this man's about to do. And by speaking to that, he's able to bring this last moment of a very tense situation to a close, without needing to throw a punch. Instead, just being able to say the right words. In a return to Crime Alley by Denny O'Neill, the story opens with four boys robbing a party store, while Bruce, as Batman, is confronted by a woman who, though now much older, was a valuable part of his youth and helping him during the time that he experienced after his parents were murdered. She and Batman are attacked by these four young boys, one of whom found a gun inside the party store and thinks that Batman is just a myth, and that this is just some idiot in a costume who they can take out. I didn't really understand why the woman who speaks to Batman is, for the most part, either unaware or unwilling to see past what she believes is her biggest complaint against Batman, that he's too close to the edge, that he's using violence in the wrong ways, and that his outcome when it comes to how he's dealing with situations, and specifically in the present with these four boys, is something that is damaging. And while I acknowledge that in the past I've read stories where Batman even admits that what he does isn't the best way to go about things, when they're in his town and he has to face them as Batman, this is what he does and this is who he is. And in order to be the Batman that Gotham needs, that's not going to change. And I was confused as to why there was a need to have this character tell him this 
or for him to prove this to the woman who, while she knew him as a boy, doesn't seem to understand how much her life is in danger, even if she feels safe because she's with Batman, or how dangerous these four boys would have been for anybody else who isn't Batman or doesn't have Batman hanging out with them. On the other hand, Heretic by Christopher Priest was a story that actually showed the impact that Bruce Wayne, before Batman, had when he had sought instruction from all the numerous temples and was later exposed to the League of Assassins. It was his impact and a time when he was beaten up in an alley and his wallet was stolen when Bruce Wayne was able to reach out to a student of Ra's al Ghul and to make that connection and raise that possibility. Now, by the end of the story, when Batman is facing off against the League of Assassins, their leader accuses him of being a disease, of being some sort of infection, and that because of that, Batman, Bruce Wayne, is the reason that this man was murdered, and that all of the people that he was helping to escape from Ra's al Ghul and to leave the League of Assassins was brought out because of an exposure to Bruce Wayne, and that for that, Bruce Wayne and Batman need to not only suffer, but potentially die. Of course, that seems to be the goal whenever you're dealing with the League of Assassins. But I was intrigued by the idea that the story points out that this is only the beginning, and I'm curious to see when more elements from this story will play themselves out. In the story I Know by Brian Michael Bendis, Penguin approaches Bruce Wayne. They are both old, and Penguin reveals that he knows that Bruce Wayne is Batman. And then he explains why he has always known and has never told. And the story leads to a moment when Penguin has taken all of his penguins and equipped them with bombs and led them all to Wayne Manor when a giant gala is being held. And just before he is about to unleash them, he has a terrifying thought that if he misses and somehow Bruce Wayne and all of these famous people, but more importantly, Bruce Wayne is killed, that Batman, who he knows is Bruce Wayne, will lose that tether that he has maintained to his human side, this foppish, arrogant, annoying character of Bruce Wayne. Penguin claims that, having faced Batman enough, he's looked into his eyes and seen that, clearly, Batman is on the edge of insanity. And he believes that if he follows through with his plan to attack Bruce Wayne at his manor, and succeeds only in forcing Wayne to kill off that identity and become Batman full-time, that it will be his undoing, that they will all be destroyed for it, and that Batman himself will become a monster. And maybe he'll stop or be stopped, but not before Penguin and all those like him, but in this moment for self-preservation, specifically Penguin, will suffer greatly for it, and that the only way he can guarantee that he will stay alive or has any chance of doing so is if he walks away from this disastrous plan. I got a kick out of this because it takes me back to a film from the 90s called The Usual Suspect. And a character who is described at one point as named Verbal Kint is being grilled by an investigator who wants to know why Verbal, 
when the opportunity presented itself, didn't take a shot at a gangster who's legendary named Kaiser Soze. Verbal was in hiding, he had a gun, and Kaiser Soze had his back turned to Verbal. And Verbal explains that he was scared. In his description, Kaiser Soze is the devil. He's the worst of the worst. Everything monstrous in or outside of the world all rolled into one. And that that kind of evil is so powerful that if some mere mortal like Verbal was to take a pot shot from behind and miss, it would be the end of everything. And that, that even if he did succeed, it wouldn't be enough. And in fact, even if he took the shot and he was right on the mark, it wouldn't be enough. As Verbal Kent explains to the investigator, how do you shoot the devil in the back? That image or feeling or impression was with me as I read this story and the description from Penguin about why he held back after having known all this time. But in the final moments, Batman releases an electric volt that shocks Penguin. And then he says to Penguin that he knew that the Penguin knew his identity and that he knew there was no way Penguin would ever do anything about it because he was a coward, that he was too afraid. And Bruce Wayne knew it. And the only reason Penguin had ever had a chance was because Bruce Wayne let him. In the story, The Last Crime in Gotham, by Jeff Johns, we flash forward to a near future. It's the final crime in Gotham. Twelve people are found dead, and they're all wearing holiday sweaters. By now, the cast of the family is larger and they seem older, not just in their bearing, but in their speech and mannerisms. When they arrive, Commissioner Gordon informs them that the Joker, who has been ill, has just died. And through a bit of deduction, they discover that the Joker's son is one of the twelve sitting around the table. He's left behind a note describing how this was a plan put into place to not only recognize a disease or a sickness that existed within his father, but one that existed in the Joker's son as well, and one that the Joker's son had recognized about himself and his father. And that in doing so, the Joker's son had wanted this all to come to an end. And Batman has described through the deduction that this was an attempt to take all of Batman's greatest detective cases or mysteries and try and roll them all into one. And the Joker's son simply points out that this was the way that he wanted it to end. On a final note, we see Batman blowing out a candle, and it's revealed that it was his birthday. I wasn't left with more than a, a somber feeling and a sense of sad, if not ominous closure. Not, not so much a, a bang of destruction as so often has been predicted would eventually be the, the Dark Knight's end, but instead, a whimper, a sad note, and then darkness. Now, The Precedent by James Tenney IV is a great story about what it means for Batman to choose to take on Dick Grayson as the first Robin. It opens with a discussion between Bruce and Alfred, 
about the risks involved and the importance. Batman is worried that it will create and set a tone for the future, one that could have disastrous consequences. And yet, Alfred is the one pointing out how he feels that Batman was adversely affected on his journey to becoming the Dark Knight of Gotham, and that having learned all those lessons and having already reached that point, Dick Grayson as Robin would simply have to follow by his side. He wouldn't have to experience some of those hardships or face the challenges that had changed the Bruce Wayne that Alfred had known and loved as a young boy and now recognized was a very different man. And the possibility that Dick would be able to experience this in a different way could lead to a more promising result by the time he reaches adulthood. And then Dick, true to his form as a natural acrobat, swings from the chandelier, which he points out can hold a great deal of weight, and lets it be known that this is something he wants too. As he and Alfred point out, the secret's out, cat's out of the bag, and now they have to move forward. So why not move forward with Dick's training? One of my favorite lines comes from Alfred when he says, I've seen what it has done for you. He could make you better. A hero forged in the light. And describing that as a possible precedent that they might be setting by taking on Dick and starting his journey as Robin, it's a really great and uplifting tone. And I really enjoyed the balance it provided as we moved into these last stories. And wrapping things all up is Batman's Greatest Case by Tony S. Daniel and Joel. And this one also provides that great note of just lighthearted recognition of the elements that make up Batman and his family that don't always have to do with the grim. Everyone's gathered in an area near a rooftop and they've paired off into little conversations about why they're there and what it means. Of course, Jason Todd thinks that it's his fault that he's done something wrong, something beyond the pale, and that now he is going to be kicked out of the family. Of course, everyone else has their own idea on why they're there and what's important. And then Batman arrives and he sets up a batarang and through dialogue and description it's revealed that all he really wants is a picture with everyone together and when you turn the page to the double spread you get this great shot of a family and that was the last story in detective comics 1000 i felt that the majority were some of the best stories that i've read in a while and I couldn't help but give this book a 5 out of 5 on the rating scale. I hope you get a chance to pick it up, because I know that I'm going to be flipping through its pages again and again, enjoying each story, each moment, and overall, a great experience that showcases so many of the talents that consider it such an honor to share their version or their story of what Batman is what he means, and why and how they wanted to share that with us, the fans, the readers. And with the spinner rack still slowly twirling, I reach out and find in my hands Martian Manhunter, number four. 
by Stephen Orlando. I love The Martian Manhunter, so I'm willing to admit that this review may be biased. I think I would have chosen this issue even without my previously stated affection. The idea of a disease attacking the mind of a species like the Martians, who base so much of their ability to coexist and maintain the fabric of their culture, is a compelling and challenging idea. And I feel that Orlando definitely presents a subtle threat that is extremely pernicious, that it is something that's represented extremely well. So much of what the Martians are able to do is based on their extraordinary mental capabilities. And Haranmir's curse is a disease of a thought, a thought that is the infection, something so powerful that the mention of it can infect the person who hears it. And once they're infected, the disease spreads. John's wife, Mariah, asked the perfect question, how do you stop a thought? And I'm hooked to see how this is going to be accomplished, if it can be accomplished. For anyone who's familiar with John Johns, there's a tragic story that has always been a part of his history. And how this story of Hranmir's curse plays into it is something that I'm completely just... Well, I'm turning the page as quickly as I can read it so that I can get closer to what I'm hoping will be either the resolution or the revelation. I also like the layers of political tension that occur throughout this issue. First, there is the government that refusing to acknowledge that there is a disease, which is a really interesting echo of the early 80s and the AIDS crisis and the lack of recognition from the U.S. government and then President Ronald Reagan regarding even acknowledging that AIDS was a disease or that it was out there. And then there is the issue of John. John Johns, who on Earth is the Martian Manhunter. But this is a story of his time when he lived on Mars and worked as a cop, police officer, a legal enforcer, <laughs> a law abider. But anyone reading this issue from number one knows that John is a dirty cop and that his ties to the criminal underground are a liability that will eventually unravel, as so often does whenever a character is so compromised. Now, not only is it something that he is keeping from his wife, and since they can share thoughts when they are intimate, this is leading to some really awkward situations that John simply cannot continue to cover with an excuse that it's the fear of the disease and a need to quarantine dangerous thoughts that they each are picking up due to the nature of their careers. He covers well because there's also the emotional fatigue and drain that he's experiencing while essentially allowing himself to be a part of some really ugly things that he knows he shouldn't be doing, but that are affecting him. And this is an opportunity for him to use that as something to strengthen his story. And while he is emotional, it also is clear that while this is something that's working in the short term, it's not going to be a long-term solution. And that eventually his wife is going to realize that there's more to his keeping his thoughts from her than just a need for safety. It's also something that's leading him to make rash choices. And when he feels the threat of Ranmir's curse is something that he needs to address in a different way. He asked the criminal underground to help save his family. 
And they agree. As long as he is willing to steal something very valuable from his own government, something that, once the criminals have, will actually change just how much power they hold. Now, the tension, the politics, the disease, relationships with his family, his wife, and his challenge of being a dirty cop who it feels like might be trying to make things right or might actually just be feeling the consequences of his actions. I also love the way this looks. I love the colors and the layers of the reds and greens and the fluid lines around the characters and the environment. I personally think Riley Rossmo is a master for what's going on in these pages. And that the style brings me back to a favorite comic of mine, Green Lantern Mosaic and the art of Cully Hammer with the storytelling of Gerard Jones from back in 1990. Now regarding my overall just affections for John, I feel I just have to be honest, even though it's kind of difficult to put in words. My first exposure to the Martian Manhunter came in the 90s when he was part of Justice League America. And I loved him then for his relationship to Elrond and his guilty pleasure of meditation and Oreos. I was always impressed by his patience and his wisdom. And it feels from this series that it came from many hard lessons learned on Mars and maybe even again after he came to Earth, depending on the version of his backstory or origin that's being drawn from or that will eventually be uh, told in this version of John. But I was always, if not intrigued, then brought to a sense of almost fear or concern because John's ability to sense so much and his willingness to open himself up to great dangers just to gain knowledge or understanding or just to try and do more than he felt his limitations were allowing him was a terrible risk. And in a really great collection known as Kingdom Come, a future glimpse of John revealed a broken figure who had at one point decided to open himself up to the entire world and the weight of the world tore him apart and broke him. And I always wondered why he wanted that feeling so much. And now as I'm reading through this storyline of Martian Manhunter, I think I'm beginning to get a better understanding. No other sense has been developed for me like this, despite numerous flashbacks and opportunities to see him longing and missing his family. This is the first time that it's felt so entrenched that I'm gaining that deeper day-to-day understanding of what it is he had and that he's lost. And I know now that he's haunted by the memory of every time he closed himself off from his wife, or every other time he did something that he regrets, choosing to keep his secrets and shames instead of becoming completely connected with the woman he loves. And now, knowing what I know of him as the character that I've read since he's come to Earth, I know that he can never experience that again, much like he knows, and that we are seeing the many times that he made the choice to not allow that level of intimacy and what it would eventually cost him. And maybe that's why I love that John becomes so primitive in this story to communicate with the only witness to a murder here on earth in the present. And that witness is an iguana. It's an absolutely lovely moment where again, I feel the colors and the lines and the ability of the medium to express a different sense of existence works so wonderfully and provides a really beautiful moment of peace and simplicity before John has to probe further and experience the fear the iguana felt when the person who loved it was harmed and taken away. 
I don't like to give two fives. So I'm going to go ahead and give Martian Manhunter 4.5 out of 5 on this one. But if they keep up this great kind of storytelling and I pick Martian Manhunter again, strong chances are he's going to be getting a 5. The spinner rack is slowing just a little, but while it's still spinning, I open the pages of Shazam number 4 by Jeff Johns. And I love this story about how the magic lands, the door to the magic lands is open. It begins with Tawny the Tiger in his bed, putting the book How to Not Eat Your Friends in his jacket, and then walking down the street in Wildlands. Before we cut to Freddy and Darla in a jungle, and I love that Darla's desire to hug all of the cute animals, which are police, freaks them out until they finally get Freddy and Darla locked up in a cage. The glimpse of Shazam in Funlands is a bit dark as he's dragged before the Child King and introduced to the idea of Funlands, which is a joy for kids. But then when you turn 18, any child who is in Funland becomes a working adult whose only job is to sustain Funland till death. It's a bit gruesome and creepy, and there's a shared moment of horror when Shazam makes eye contact with Mary, who is imprisoned there, and the desperation in both of their eyes as he realizes he's not quite sure how to save her because he doesn't even understand how this world works. There's a quick cut back to the Wildlands and a ancient or retired hero named Pandemonium is mentioned by a passerby as they witness Freddy and Darla being wheeled by in a cage. And it's pointed out that should these terrifying humans escape, Pandemonium is the last one who had ever had success stopping them, but that this hero hasn't been seen in years. I'm trying not to laugh um, my butt off at how serious the animals act, and I love this introduction that we're seeing to Tawny, who is eventually approached by the local law enforcement and challenged for not acting like the animal he is and for carrying around contraband material like his book, How to Not Eat Your Friends. My final favorite moment is Pedro and Eugene in the Game Lands and the setup where they will have to defeat the Game Master in order to get out. Eugene is clearly ready to rumble, but it's the final pages back at the Rock of Eternity where a map shows all of the lands and an angry Black Adam explains how the point was to keep the land separate from each other for a reason. I especially love this part with the map because it reminds me of a story I was recently reading about. And it relates to how Tolkien was so well regarded as a world builder in his books that anyone who is considered to be a fan would make it known on college dormitories and in apartments or houses around the world by hanging the map from the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit books. And that it was that map showing all these different elements of this world that was really such a key to the popularity and the 
continued relevance of the world and the stories that Tolkien had created. Now, whether it's a love for alternate history or a desire to stay with the theme of four started by Shazam number four, I turn next to Freedom Fighters number four, written by Robert Venditti. I immediately love the art by Eddie Barrows, Ever Ferreira, and Adriano Lucas. It's a great sense of history here. We open with the destruction of Mount Rushmore, accomplished by Doll Woman, and the symbolism is everywhere, opening with two Razi soldiers killing a bald eagle, and then this great concept of the human bomb using his cells to make dermy charges. But while this is all going on, there's a nice cutaway to a place called the Heartland, which exists in the extra-dimensional realm of ideas. And I really feel like something fun is happening here, that a world is being unpacked, and it's a great time when the explosions go off and a hand pushes through the dirt, and stepping out of a grave is Uncle Sam, brushing himself off, looking a bit skinny, but proud and regal. And then he looks around at this reality, which is a graveyard. And the one and two word references he gives to characters like Hispania, Johnny Canuck, and Britannia, whom he misses. Now there's other elements being introduced as well. The moment when Hitler died and one son became the heir, and another, a son who's hidden, is the monster that's needed to quell this new uprising of freedom violence. And then in the midst of this news, that the freedom fighters are attacking, and there's fear in the world, and a moment when they need something to help them rise up. And in that moment, listening to all this chaos, feeling like he's almost torn apart, and acting like it's everything he can do to simply keep himself together. Uncle Sam appears. There, in Earth-X, in an alley, while a Ratsy is harassing a man for wearing red, white, and blue together. And with one punch, Uncle Sam knocks him out, and then says, one Ratsy down, let's go get the rest. I always loved the spirit of the Freedom Fighters. I always found myself drawn to the almost nobly tragic nature of what they were doing and hoping to accomplish, and the sense that they were in a never-ending battle, that they were always outnumbered and overwhelmed, and that at some point they knew that this fight would eventually get to each one of them, if not take them all out at once. And there was something always beautiful about that that I missed, when the Freedom Fighters weren't around. And now that they've returned in this new modern telling, I can't help but feel that there's an awareness, a very conscientious approach and recognition that the story that's being told in the Freedom Fighters in many ways reflects tensions that exist all around us, whether it's the same kind of challenge being faced in your country or in a country that you hear of. The idea of an overwhelming force and those few willing to stand against it is a reason why I think I'm going to find myself picking up more issues of the Freedom Fighters 
and why I'd recommend picking this one up and giving yourself a chance to see just what it is that's happening in these stories. My final score for Freedom Fighters? A solid four. And as the spinner rack begins to slow for my fifth and final book of today's session, I choose Dial H for Hero by Sam Humphreys. In this story, Superman saved a young boy named Miguel after he almost drowned. And that was a highlight of Miguel's life that he has always carried with him, and one that he tried to match by being just a bit more reckless than he probably needed to be. But it's something that he couldn't push away from, even after his parents died, and he found himself struggling in his existence while living with and working for his Uncle Brant in a mayo food truck. Miguel meets Summer, the girl who he only knows as the girl who keeps running away. And after a crappy day at work, Miguel decides that he needs to shake off the frustrations of the day and chase that thrill that he's been seeking ever since the day Superman saved his life. He faces off in the final moments of dusk with a giant ramp <laughs> that doesn't look like it could ever adequately cross a ravine. And as he charges down it and leaps across, Miguel is driven to push himself, only to realize that this time he's not going to make it. And as he's falling to his death, a red phone appears. And as the handset releases and dangles in front of him, the phone, through the voice in the earpiece, tells him that if he wants to live, he's going to need to press H. And when Miguel does press H, he's transported into a telephone booth. And then a great page of individual panels showing Snapper Carr, Robin, Lobo, Harley Quinn, and Alfred all receiving an H on their foreheads. And Alfred even tells Bruce, Sir, the H is back. We cut back to Miguel floating in a void and a voice telling him, If you wish to escape, if you wish to be magnificent, if you wish to discover yourself, all you have to do is dial H. And Miguel, in that moment, becomes the hero known as Monster Truck. <laughs> and Monster Truck just makes me laugh. Because his origin, a member of the Chuck Force, a Chuck Force of immortals who every thousand years pick a new eternal champion for the Earth, a champion of trucking. And this time, they have chosen Miguel. Now, of course, I'm not going to get too caught up on the idea that Every thousand years, a new eternal champion is chosen, because if he's an eternal champion, why they need a new one every thousand years? Let's just keep turning the pages and going past scenes of Miguel trashing boulders and then cars before finally waking up as himself in a used car lot of trashed vehicles and cops begging for him over loudspeakers to please stop setting off bombs. Now, Miguel course runs away and as coincidental or serendipitous storytelling would have it he's met by summer driving his uncle brant's mayo truck he finally gets home and receives a call it's the operator calling from the heroverse to warn miguel that the thunderbolt club will stop at nothing to get what is the most powerful weapon 
I never read the original series, but a more recent version that I took a glance at felt kind of dark and morose. This looks light and fun, and without much experience reading the previous stories and only having a summarized understanding of the original version of Dial H for Hero, I'm really intrigued to read more, and I feel like this first issue was a really great introduction. It certainly wasn't perfect, and clearly I have some questions about some of the holes that occurred, but for me, Dial H for Hero number one is a solid three out of five. And the spinner rack has slowed to a stop, which brings us to the end of our episode. And with my five issues securely in hand, I am looking forward to next week's releases and the chance to share with you more selections from the spinner rack. As always, DC Comics News is now on all the major podcast platforms, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play. So please head over and subscribe to the DC Comics News podcast so you can rate and review and never miss an episode of the DC Comics News podcast or the DC Comics News Spinner Rack. You can also follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, and YouTube at DC Comics News. And, as always... Read more comics.